0: Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Jennifer Lind, Associate Professor of Government at Dartmouth College. Jennifer, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much, John.
0: I want to start by asking you about recent changes in Japan's national security strategy. They say they intend to, I think, double military spending over something like five years and develop new counter-strike capabilities. And you wrote recently that these moves signal a profound transformation. Can you talk a little bit more about this and and the context that's contributing to those changes?
1: The news of these changes in Japanese defense policy was so striking to those of us who've been observing Japan for a long time, partly because Japan has resisted changes like this for decades. The United States has been trying to get Japan to spend more on its military and and basically, Japanese defense spending has remained flat, at least as a percentage of GDP. And so the the idea that they were going to move to two percent GDP, two percent of GDP defense spending was pretty astonishing to those of us who have again wondered <laughs> when this might ever happen. Uh, and then also the development of counterstrike capabilities was. Uh, very surprising, because it's again something that J- the Japanese have considered for a long time, had debated uh, decades ago, and its leaders had basically decided against it, citing their their primacy of um, defensive defense. And again, there's the the strong resistance among many in Japan to this idea of of offensive power projection. So these have been really notable changes and if you're if you're wondering well why now why why today do we see these changes in Japan you could basically look to changes in Japan's threat environment which are very striking and very real and and the Japanese are increasingly becoming more aware of this so with respect to the defense spending if you merely look at the dramatic increase in Chinese military spending and military capabilities, particularly in the maritime sphere, that provides an answer to why Japan is feeling increasingly alarmed. There was also a lot of hope about Chinese foreign policy for the first couple decades of its rise, but Japan and and others, of course, are seeing that China is behaving in a more aggressive, more hawkish manner, particularly toward Taiwan which Japan obviously is is very concerned about due to proximity to the Japanese islands, and then also due to the island dispute that China and Japan share. So Japan is is watching this Chinese military buildup, and is quite concerned about, increasingly concerned about Chinese intentions. The other thing to think about is the changes in the missile threat environment, and between the dramatic buildup. Of, of Chinese missile just in terms of inventory, and then also the North Korean missile threat. And also given technological changes such as the hypersonic missile technology that China and also potentially North Korea are starting to wield, essentially the the number and, and type of missiles that Japan's adversaries are fielding are, are rendering Japan's missile defense strategy essentially obsolete. And so that was responsible for this this truly historic move toward Counter-Strike.
0: So I wonder um if you think that's enough or cuz you did you, you recently wrote an op-ed, you co-authored an op-ed actually that explained that any Japanese reluctance to shoulder more responsibility might make Americans I think you said quote reasonably wonder why they are supposed to care and risk more on protecting Japan than the Japanese themselves do. Um, I wonder what insight you can give us about the differences in how the US sees the China threat and how its allies in Asia, like Japan and perhaps South Korea, see the Chinese threat. Is there a distinction there that can explain some of this variability in spending?
1: Absolutely. Before I get to that, I, I'd i like to comment on the the first part of your question. When we we ask ourselves to take a step back and and evaluate the recent moves in in Japanese defense policy, I think that there's reasons both to say this is a very big deal and also reasons to be skeptical at this early stage. The, The reason why it's such a big deal is because of comparing Japan to its past self. <laughs> so so comparing Japan to Japan's policy before. And as I said, those of us who have been observing Japan for a long time are so struck by the the change in Japan's policy relative to its previous policy. What I always like to add into the debate however is comparing Japan to other countries. And and there taking that more comparative context, let alone the context of comparing Japan to other great powers, right? Uh, Those contexts make Japan's recent moves look quite modest. So we're talking about Japan moving from 1% of GDP to 2% of GDP, essentially moving from half the global average to the global average in defense spending. The global average in defense spending is about 2.1%, I believe. And yet, Japan is not the global average country, (laughs) if there is such a thing, Um, both in terms of its capability, in terms of its potential, and also in terms of the level to which it is threatened. We would expect a country with Japan's massive economy, again, number three in the world, and we would expect Japan with its astounding degree of technological sophistication, one of the most innovative countries in the world, we would expect that country to be much more involved in defense technology, for example, and that's not something that we've seen um, Japan rise to, to um, the level that we would expect. And then turning to the other point about threat environment, we would expect a country that was uh, in the backyard of a rather hostile rising superpower. We would expect that country to be terrified, particularly given that the Chinese don't have a lot of love lost for the Japanese. So, uh, and indeed, to be to be more specific, imbue their people in a pretty anti-Japanese nationalism that highlights. Japanese cruelties to the Chinese people historically. So, for all those reasons, we would expect Japan to be spending a lot more on defense. And so, again, it's it's historically quite unusual that Japan has been spending as little as it has. Uh, But perhaps you can explain that by saying, well, maybe Japan hasn't felt particularly threatened in the past couple of decades. So, so clearly, Japan still remains quite focused on the United States as the center of its national security strategy and relies heavily on the United States for its security. And that has explained why it's it has spent as little as it has um, and continues to spend, as I said, uh, if Japan does make these changes, that would bring it up to still what is a very low level of defense spending.
0: Um, you published a piece in the Journal of Global Security Studies that looked at national narratives and the problem that kind of historical baggage between countries can pose for international cooperation. And I think I want I want you to talk more about the specific case of, of Japan uh, in a second. But uh, first, can you just tell us about these collective narratives as a phenomenon and how they can determine policy?
1: As somebody who studies East Asia, and particularly the United States and American alliances, I was always extremely interested in this view that history stands in the way between some of America's key allies. And so this is something that's frequently said with respect to Japan and South Korea, which is, People say, we would expect these two countries to be doing a lot more in terms of working together, cooperating together. They're both democracies. They're both very high-tech countries. They're both allied with the United States. They both fear North Korea, for example. So these are all the reasons that people list. And essentially, they say this this raises a puzzle, which is why don't we see these countries being closer security partners? And the answer that many people gave was that history was standing in the way. When I was doing my research for my, my dissertation, which later became my book, Sorry States, I found something quite remarkable about the case of West German and French reconciliation, which was that there had been, again, there's this common view consistent with this East Asian narrative, that because West Germany issued these remarkable apologies and taught its young people in a more accurate history, a more honest history about its atrocities during the war, um, and and because West Germany built museums and monuments to these atrocities to educate people and to, to show that the Germans wanted to learn from all this, this was the big difference between the Germans and the Japanese. So that was a very common argument that, that actually served as the motivating question behind that project. But what I found in that project when I was doing my research is that the West Germans and the French came together much earlier. In fact, it, it, their cooperation predated most of West Germany's truly remarkable gestures of apology and atonement. And and so basically, uh, you you simply couldn't make the claim that it was West German atonement that led to reconciliation with France or indeed with others. Um, The the formation of NATO, the decision to partner between, and and also the decision to increase Franco-German partnership in the early 60s, that all predated the West German atonement. So that got me thinking about this overall hypothesis in Asia. Because again, the the absence of atonement on behalf of the Japanese was being used to explain the absence of reconciliation and cooperation between Japan and South Korea. So um, so I, I started researching this topic in that context and again, found that uh, we see much more variation in Japanese-South Korean cooperation than that typical narrative can account for. So we would see, for example, times when South Korea was very excited about Japanese um, decisions to increase their their national security burden uh, during the 1970s. For example, uh, we would see the The South Koreans, much more receptive to uh, military exercises, to port visits, all sorts of of various security cooperation. Um And so that variation over time just could not be explained by the pattern of of Japanese remembrance. So that led me to an argument that said that it it wasn't the the apologies that drove the reconciliation. It was was actually the need to cooperate driven by security threats that was driving the the way that the South Korean leaders interacted with the Japanese leaders and and indeed the extent to which they were even pushing for apologies and other gestures. So in short, uh, when they need to cooperate, they will create a narrative that's conducive to that. And in fact, as my, as my book showed, apologies are a are, are, are very flawed <laughs> means of countries coming together. It, it's actually a very divisive thing for one country to issue an apology to another. And if if you're another country, you understand that. And so if you really actually are quite serious about cooperation, then you, you don't ask for apologies. Uh, you you look for other things you can do. You look for moments of of, of shared expression of values, or you look for, for example, when we saw uh, President Obama visit Hiroshima. Uh, Shinzo Abe did not push Obama for an apology, but the two leaders made a statement about the the need to eradicate nuclear weapons from the world, you know, something that the the two governments could get behind. So, basically when I'm talking about narratives, I'm saying the desire to come together as two countries is driven by the threat environment and if countries are motivated, they create, they help each other create, they they try and meet each other halfway they help each other create a narrative that both sides can live with. And that in both countries always always ends up being a bit painful. Uh, it requires some compromise. It requires in both countries, some groups feeling chagrined or neglected. And there's often a lot of protest that goes with that. But certainly in the West German French case and in many other cases, we see that, that that's the direction that this flows. It's not that there's some magic set of words (laughs) that are issued as an apology and then everything is better. Because again, a really important thing that most people overlook is Japan has issued many apologies repeatedly in many different forms and paid reparations and so on. And so anybody who says, oh, well, Japan needs to apologize and then South Korea will be willing to cooperate with Japan, that there is no magic apology that Japan hasn't yet given. Um, That There's no magic set of words that will satisfy everyone. And and so that's a really important thing that most people leave out when they talk about South Korea and Japan reconciling someday.
0: So you said something like, when states feel they need to cooperate, when they're motivated to cooperate, they can overcome those narratives. But in some cases, they're more, these narratives are more sticky than in others. Um, does it have to do with domestic pressures and the, the population's inability to reframe? Does it have to do with more uh, governmental uh, questions? What, what accounts for this difference in stickiness?
1: That's a great question. And you're absolutely right that it's going to vary by country in terms of their domestic political situation. And it's also going to obviously vary by the level of threat that countries confront. And when we, the United States, look at South Korea, we think, gosh, they they must feel really threatened. Um, they must feel really threatened by North Korea. They must feel really threatened by China, Um, so I think we bring a lot of our own perception to that particular case, and and I don't know that that's actually true. (laughs) I I think that there's a uh, there's an increasing threat perception of a North Korean nuclear threat, but that certainly doesn't call for partnering with Japan. Um, There certainly uh, is not a fear. Of a North Korean conventional military threat against South Korea, because that's something that South Korea and the United States would clearly defeat, given the South uh, and the United States' conventional superiority. So, um, so again, it's not clear how Japan factors into that. Um, and then, as for the the Chinese threat it's not clear that South Koreans perceive a huge threat from China. They they don't have a territorial dispute of great significance. And indeed, they're heavily reliant on China as a trade partner. Um, South Korean companies want to keep trading with China. And so the idea of decoupling, for example, is is really quite anathema in South Korea. And so I think the United States imposes on that situation its own view of how it thinks South Korea should feel, uh, when in reality, South Korean threat perception is, is not something that is high, or to be more specific, it's not something that could easily be remedied by partnering with Japan. And so I think that that is a really important factor combined with the fact that South Korea is a democracy with, with very engaged, motivated victims groups that have been protesting against Japanese atrocities for decades and so on. And so uh, the current situation is is not necessarily ripe for reconciliation.
0: Um, in a foreign affairs piece a, a couple years ago, you cited former senior U.S. Navy official Thomas Schugert, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, he says, absent significant changes in current trends, we should expect Chinese military domination of the region in a decade or so. Um, what does that actually mean? What does that? Uh, what does Chinese military domination of the region look like?
1: I think the question from the United States standpoint, which is is driving U.S. foreign policy and U.S. alliance policy, what one question we can ask is. To what extent can the United States military move safely around the East Asian region? Another question we could ask is to what extent could the US military come to the defense of its allies and have a reasonable prospect of of prevailing? And then there's a much higher bar, which is to what extent could the, the Chinese imagine dominating the region and basically uh, through various diplomatic and other means expelling the U.S. military. So those are those are all different questions that we're interested in. I think the the first question: To what extent can the U.S. move safely about the region? That that's changed dramatically in recent years, and and people who Spend all day long looking at the military balance in the region. They're 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 saying, look, we we couldn't do today the kinds of things that we used to be able to do in the past. For for example, the idea of the Clinton administration sending aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Strait uh, it wouldn't be safe to do that today. We couldn't do that today, at least not wisely. Um, regarding the question of a US military engagement in the region and to what extent the the United States could fight a war and and expect to dominate in that war i think that's the the question of the day that that people are discussing and more and more the research that the people are doing in terms of for example the the effect of the chinese missile threat against american warships aircraft carriers and so on um also, the extent of the the Chinese missile threat and and other types of threats against uh, American airfields and allied airfields in the region. I, I think more and more people are finding that the the situation has gotten very serious um it's It's possible that the United States could end up dominating in for example i think the the most common scenario that people are modeling would be a war over taiwan and my understanding is it's people are concluding that it's possible that the united states could maintain control of the air but that requires massive american losses in terms of aircraft and personnel and it would also require essentially immediately targeting Chinese military assets within China, which is extraordinarily dangerous and has a very high risk of nuclear escalation. So when when people are analyzing these these missions, uh, these are very very concerning. These are very worrying in terms of how dangerous these missions have gotten.
0: Um, in that same piece, you cite a Rand Corporation study warning about a lot of things you just worried about, I think. Uh, The sophisticated sensors, the weapons platforms, uh, a growing navy, and this erodes the U.S. ability to funnel its aircraft and surface vessels into the region. Uh, And that's what you just said. My biases are, I think, probably clear here, but sometimes I hear that and I go, hey, that doesn't sound half bad. You know, a formidable Chinese military that deters... um, u s interventionism on the other side of the planet doesn't have me weeping uh, terribly um, but if and if we follow that line of thinking a little further, don't most of these weapon systems kind of add to deterrence kind does that do you see that as increasing a defense dominant uh area or or as uh, creating more instability
1: well I sh- I don't know if I should say this but I I think you should be weeping. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um and and basically it's it's drawing attention to the differential between our strategy and the the decreasing ability to implement that strategy. And right. and that's the that's the worrying place where we may be headed where we should not be happy about going. So, a critic of U.S. foreign policy might say, "Hey, this strategy is not good. This strategy is too expensive, or you know, post-colonialist, or uh, you know, you, you name the criticism. Um, we we should draw down our military forces. We should have our allies do more, and so on. So, so you could take the position that this strategy is too ambitious, too costly." to morally flawed, you know whatever you would like to say. And then you could say all right, so let's change that policy in accordance with that view and therefore not promise to do these various missions, not make those promises to these allies. And and that would be you know that that would that would mean that we don't necessarily need to worry about the growth in Chinese power and so on. That would be our allies' problem to worry about. On the other hand, we could say, well, I, I think that the direction that China is going to take the region is really worrisome. Uh, I think that the, the the way that China practices its foreign policy, its goals for the international system, uh, this idea of a east asian regional hegemon with a you know the the idea that we talk about in international relations as freedom to roam this idea of a china with a secure backyard and therefore it has the a, ability to spread its wings around the world gosh that that sounds pretty dangerous and so i think there's something that that we need to do to make sure that that china is deterred from doing that Um, and so that requires a more expansive American strategy. So so then that's essentially the strategy we have today. And so the question is, can we still do that strategy? Or at least can we do it in the way that we've been planning to? Um, Which basically in the past 20 years has meant um, not relying very much on our allies, not asking all that much of our allies. I mean, to be clear, we ask a lot of them in in lots of different ways. They provide essential infrastructure. The, the Japanese provide a, a, a lot of bases, a lot of funding, right? So there's a, a lot that they are doing. So I don't want to say the allies aren't doing anything. But if we go back to thinking about the Cold War era and comparing that to the era of American primacy since the collapse of the Soviet Union. We see a pretty big change, right? We see that the the European allies used to do a lot more. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, their defense spending dropped significantly. And so essentially what I'm saying with China is um, we need to realize primacy is over like we we are not in primacy anymore. We have a bipolar system that has emerged. And so we need to update our national security policy to reflect that because we we can't do this alone. No country has ever done this kind of thing alone. When the United States enjoyed its period of primacy, it elected to fight various wars against very weak countries and asked only token contributions from its allies the you know so-called coalitions of the willing this is not a time when we can rely on that that this is a time again emerging bipolarity is a time when you need serious capability aggregation as well as just providing launch pads and bases and so on and so It's really important that the allies, as well as the United States, have to make this shift both mentally and then also in terms of their national security policies.
0: So you mentioned primacy. Um, In another foreign affairs piece, this one from I think 2020 co-authored with Daryl Press, you wrote that the US is operating, as you just said, in a world of greater geopolitical constraints than it's been used to in its recent history and that Washington has a primacy mindset which includes a disregard for the core interests of potential adversaries can you expand on that a little bit
1: one aspect of the primacy mindset was one that that i just mentioned which is this idea that you're so strong you you don't need allies you can you can do this by yourself and rely on you know, perhaps token support or non-military support and so on. So that's one aspect of this primacy mindset that Daryl Press and I wrote about. There are other aspects too, and and one is this idea that that you just alluded to, which is in a bipolar world, the United States, certainly during the Cold War, had to think about how its actions would be received in the other great power and and to what extent our actions would affect the interests of that great power and how it might push back. And and that's something that we've had the luxury of not thinking about for the last couple of decades. And and so again, I I call that the primacy mindset where we didn't necessarily have to think about another great power's interests. One example of the primacy mindset, I think, is what we're seeing with respect to China and the Ukraine war. So I found it fascinating when we we heard early on that uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told the Chinese, you know, we are watching the arms that are involved in this war in Ukraine. And we are watching to see if you are sending any arms to this, this war. And if we do, there will be serious consequences. If we do find that the Chinese are sending arms, then you know there's going to be some unspecified hell that will rain down. I mean, take a step back and think about how Stunning a statement that is for the United States, which is arming Ukraine openly, uh, proudly, uh, saying uh, and every time we put a microphone in front of a, a political leader, they they talk about isn't this amazing what we're doing for the 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 fantastic Ukrainians who are fighting so hard and isn't NATO great for supporting this country? And, and then acting as if a Chinese selling of you know a single bullet <laughs> to Russia would be this astounding violation. That is the primacy mindset, that the notion that only we get to arm one of these combatants. Uh, again, when you think back to the Cold War, this this kind of war was was quite common with with each superpower arming different sides. And so we're we're not seeing that yet. And the the Chinese have been uh certainly not openly and and I think in a much more limited I think they are sending a lot of support and doing many other things that are supporting Russia. Uh, but they're certainly not arming the Russians to the massive extent that the United States is arming the Ukrainians. So again, I'm not doing anything here. I'm not saying this is bad, good, whatever. I'm simply saying this is an astounding example of the primacy mindset that Washington feels it is the only state that has the, the legitimacy to get involved in this conflict. And Unfortunately, we're going to have to get used to China thinking that it has every right to get involved in different conflicts and and every right to arm certain sides and sell arms to to certain customers that we wouldn't want and so on. And that's just what happens in bipolarity. And so, again, it's, it's one example of the primacy mindset in action.
0: I think this is a a super important point. Uh, It's interesting that you're here saying these are major threats, and um, we need to adopt a strategy that acknowledges these new realities, but part of what you're recommending is uh, not confrontation or hostility, but explicitly recognizing not only the limits of American power, but the potential legitimate national interests of our adversaries. In other words, recognizing them and not violating certain of their priorities can have a stabilizing effect. And this is often kind of overlooked by simplistic hawk dove dichotomies. Can you uh, talk a bit about how we should approach both Russia and China?
1: When it comes to US policy, I, I think I look at China and Russia quite differently. And particularly, uh, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Before that invasion, I saw Russia as a weaker power, as a declining power, uh, certainly as one that had a lot of resources. And and I think I actually probably overestimated their resources because I, like most people, were pretty surprised at the Russian performance against against Ukraine. Um, that that's not something I would have expected. So when it comes to Russia, given that we're we're looking at the rise of a more threatening China, I believe the the Europeans need to do more to be focusing on security in Europe and the United States, although it would certainly welcome European interest in Asia. Um, I don't think we should expect. A whole lot of European interest in Asia. And so I I advocate very much a division of labor in terms of the the Western Europeans stepping up and doing more in Europe. The bottom line is Russia has shown us it's not capable of taking on NATO. It it couldn't even take on Ukraine. And so if, if Europeans would doubt, oh, well, we couldn't possibly balance against Russia. I, I think that there's just not a whole lot to that argument. We can kind of quickly dispel that argument. I understand that if we're talking about guns and butter, we, we all like our butter, but, um, but they have been spending such low sums on defense for the past couple of decades, and that's something that can change and I think needs to change. With respect to the, the Chinese threat, again, it goes back to this, this simple change in the global balance of power that we are entering a bipolar system again. And as I said, we, we need to get out of this primacy mindset that says the United States can just address this problem while the allies provide us with minimal help, but otherwise don't step up. And so for example, this means when our treaty allies decide that they value trade more with China, then the primacy mindset would say, oh, that's okay because we don't really need you. Um, We'll take care of this and you just go ahead and trade with China. (laughs) Um, But again, we, we can't have that primacy mindset anymore. We need to ask our treaty allies, we need to say, hey, um, do we really share the same security priorities? Because if we don't, then what's this alliance about? Um, That's what an alliance is supposed to be about. And we are looking at a situation of a more threatening China. And the United States is being uh, forced to look at, uh, I I think, increasing its defense budget In order to balance against that or asking more of its allies or potentially both. And so I I think that taking a step back, I I think that it's important to not say, oh, how do we manage these great powers, China and Russia, but to note that the, the great powers are very different. One of them is a declining one that the NATO allies could easily balance against, and in Asia, this is this is not a country that the United States can balance against on its own, and it, it will need help from its wealthy, democratic allies in the region.
0: So that was supposed to be my last question, but now I have to ask this last one, which is how do we how do we cross that divide? I mean, if if they're not perceiving the threat the same way we are, and if they're not considering their own responsibility in that security effort overall, the same way we see it. How do we unify these visions?
1: For the US-Japan alliance, I think that there is a tremendous amount of overlap in terms of threat perception of China, shared threat perception, the belief of of shared interests. I I think that the, the recent changes in Japanese security policy show us that Japan is moving in that direction. And so that's a development that the United States can definitely work with. Um, The Japanese are a fantastic partner in so many ways. They've been training with us for 70 years. They're highly technologically advanced. Um, We have this very warm history of working together. And so I think that alliance is in really good shape actually. Other American alliances, um you know when you look across the region, you see some that there's a lot to feel good about. Uh, the partnership with Australia, I think um u s and Australian uh, views of china have have very much started to coincide after a period in which the Australians weren't really sure if they wanted to take sides and to what extent their interests were in jeopardy and so on. I think the u s and Australia have definitely um, moved closer together. So that's another alliance that I think is in pretty good shape. The alliance with the Philippines is one that I think it's pretty hard for anyone to make (laughs) predictions about given that we've seen such changes over the past few years. Uh, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, the Philippines were, were really kind of leading the way in terms of pushing back against China, and then we saw domestic political change that led them to go in the opposite direction, and and now we see another change. And so, so again, I, I can't forecast what's going to happen in in the Philippines' domestic politics. And so that's one that um, I would say that's going to be a tricky one in the future in terms of potentially changes in direction. I think the one alliance where we see significant differences and perceptions is with the US and South Korea. And I think the bottom line is that the South Koreans see that the alliance is about containing North Korea, full stop. And that's not how the United States tends to think about its alliances. We we tend to think of them as, as more networked as part of a a broader picture about international order, about values and so on, Um, not about uh, this one single uh, problem. I think we're seeing a lot of problems arise or challenges certainly arise in the US-South Korea relationship. The problem is not one of, you know, um, lack of warmth or lack of ability to cooperate. We again we have terrific relations with the South Koreans. We've been training with them for seventy years. Uh, our our men and women who are in the military are working with them every day. Uh, this is a, a fantastic partner in so many ways. But I think that the divergence in threat perception at a very high level is the is the problem. And so, uh, part of it is the North Koreans are slowly acquiring the ability to range the continental United States with intercontinental ballistic missiles um, essentially leading to a a major crisis in the alliance that no one in Washington will talk about the the crisis is is that essentially just like we saw in the the 1960s um, the Soviets got the ability to strike the United States, and that led to all sorts of tensions and conflicts within NATO. That led them to led the NATO allies to adopt a variety of strategies for how to adapt to that, including but not limited to nuclear sharing and also the possession of independent nuclear weapons. So um, South Korea and the United States are at a similar juncture at this point. And as a result, South Korea is having a very, very active debate about should it acquire an independent nuclear arsenal or pursue some of these other options that uh, indeed the other NATO allies pursued. So this is a a huge issue given that Washington is steadfastly opposed to nuclear spread. Then of course, the the other issue is the lack of shared threat perception with respect to China. And China. This is coming out particularly because South Korea is one of the most technologically advanced countries in the semiconductor realm, and the Biden administration is trying to impose export controls on dual-use semiconductor technology uh, to China. And so the U.S. started this unilaterally, and now it's been negotiating with its partners, the Dutch, the Japanese, the South Koreans, the Taiwanese. It's trying to expand this regime, essentially, and so basically, we're we're asking South Korea to take a side, and if you talk to the allies at you know at conferences, at various gatherings, uh, as I've done over the past decade or so, there's been this common refrain, which is, "Don't make us choose," and I always responded to that by saying. You know, I don't want to choose either. <laughs> Choosing is costly. It means it means I, I can't let American firms sell their products to China. And so it's it's costly to choose. And I don't want to choose either. But if we agree that there's a threat from this behavior, we need to choose. And so that's the, the bottom line is that we see this difference in perception among the South Koreans such that they're not yet ready to make that choice with respect to China. As the U.S. national security policy increasingly becomes focused on China, this is only going to lead to more and more tensions, more and more problems in the U.S.-South Korea alliance.
0: Jennifer Lind, thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure.